the only way to go into a country that is not your home country well is to be very, very, very well researched in what your objective is and what your um, knowledge is of that country, that you have to be hyper aware of the culture and the, the people in which you're hoping to live alongside and, and to never go in assuming you know what's right. It's going in with this very humble posture and mindset that you ultimately are going to be a learner and you're not going to be teaching. You're going to be learning. Hi, and welcome to Futures Collective. My name is Akil Kamal, and I'm really excited to have you join me. This podcast uncovers the stories, experiences, and skills behind young changemakers from around the world. We talk to anyone that's young or young at heart and changing the game in their industry, from entrepreneurs to activists, artists, athletes, and everything in between. My guest today is Bryn Antikin, who founded The African Soup, an organization addressing the needs of 300 orphans in rural Uganda and equipping teachers, engaging learners, and empowering communities through it. Bryn is also the executive director of the Watson Institute Boulder, where she works to empower the next generation of entrepreneurial leaders. I'm really excited to share this episode with you. Hope you enjoy. Yeah, so I really appreciate you joining me for this, Bryn. I'm excited to just dig right into your story, your experiences, um, and the learnings that you've had along the way, which we've got a snippet of in the Quickfire episode. So I'm really excited for it. Me too. Thanks for having me. No worries at all. Um, So I guess just to start us off, um, why don't you give everyone listening in a bit of context just around the sort of work um, you have been doing and the stuff that you're currently working on? Um, so I, <laughs> I don't have a lot of consistency in the work I've been doing, aside from the fact that um, since I've really been about 16 years old, I've worked in the social entrepreneurship space. So mm. uh, when I was uh, 16 years old, I had this sort of bug that I wanted to start a school and I wanted to do that in Cambodia. Ended up raising money through bake sales and car washes to help fund a school in Cambodia, which was a huge step for me. Someone who growing up couldn't make the, you know, varsity basketball team, someone who was not the straight A student, someone who by all definitions was really quite average. And I think that that was really huge yeah. for me because I, um, no one expected much from me. <laughs> when I was a little kid, I remember I had this sort of bleeding heart and I told my mom that I wanted to bring all the prisoners little puppies because they deserve love too. And she was like, well, I mean, I don't know that we can do that, but you can write a letter. And I said, well, I want to write a letter to the governor then. And I wrote this, you know, little letter to the governor saying I thought every prisoner should have a puppy dog because they deserve love too. And Aside from that, I was just a kid that loved people and loved playing outside and reading books and um, had a big family um, that was really supportive, very dynamic. Um, but I didn't come from wealth. I didn't come from a lot of, uh, I guess, people who had experienced the world, so to speak. And um, yeah. when I was 16 and wanted to do this big thing, which was build the school in Cambodia, it shocked people. They thought I lost my mind. And it wasn't that 
I was doing anything shocking. I'd always wanted to to do something of this nature, but it was the first time I actually committed to doing something. And I just told people flat out I was gonna I was gonna raise money and build a school. And I think the confidence in that notion, alongside all the amazing relationships that I'd built since I was a kid, from teachers to neighbors and um, uh, the teacher of my Sunday school class and church all just gave me these five to $50 donations. And little by little, we raised enough money to, to pull that off. And then when I went to college, I wanted to kind of redefine myself and, and, um, work in, in microfinance. So I actually, I went to Uganda, which is where, um, I started the African soup with my now co-founder, Michael Gadiwa, a Ugandan guy who, is an amazing, um, he was an amazing co-founder in that process of building the African soup, uh, finished undergrad, continued growing the African soup, ended up uh, moving to Uganda full time where I was able to work on the African soup as well as other initiatives like a, a small bow tie company called Lion's Thread, as well as a commercial renewable company, renewable energy company called Empower. And then finally, today I'm working for um, Watson Institute where I'm helping lead um, groups of young people from around the world that want to start their own social ventures. I bring them, uh, we bring them to Boulder, Colorado, where we incubate their ideas and help them flourish so that they can go back to their home countries and have investment capital under their belt experience, um, building a business plan and a uh, venture in the U.S. And, and a board. And they can really grow that idea further and um, we're hoping to expand and scale Watson around the world. That's specifically what I'm working on is the scalability of Watson Institute. And so, you know, from the school in Cambodia to the African Soup, which is an education initiative in Uganda, we have a lab school yeah. and a, a lot of initiatives doing teacher training, helping transform the education system in Uganda to commercial renewable energy to, you know, what I'm working on now at Watson Institute. Uh, it it is all been centered around the people that I've been able to do that these uh, things alongside. So every single mm-hmm. initiative, I've either had a co-founder or a team or an amazing mentor that has helped bring me through the process. But not in a single one of these initiatives was I able to do it alone. Um, it was all about the people. Mm. Definitely, and I, I really do want to touch in on. Um, sort of those networks, those support networks, the people you've had around you and um, sort of how you were able to navigate them to be able to really drive forward the work that you were doing. Um, But I also just want to move back to something you said earlier on, which was just about the initial interest that you had, you know, how you actually wanted to start a school at the age of 16 and how you developed an interest in microfinance. I always find it fascinating to try and understand where those interests really stem from for people. Um, So I guess starting with the school, where do you think that came for you, having, um, you know, that passion to start a school at such a young age? Yeah. I think that it was sort of the perfect storm. I mean, I was, I was living in a very hospitable environment, so to speak, to take risk. I was living with my parents who deeply, deeply love me, you know, have amazing family. And I was in an incredible yeah. school system, public school system here in, in the state of Georgia. And, um, I think that what happens is comfort can either be the perfect catalyst or can absolutely crush your ambition. 
And, you know, comfort is not bad unless you allow it to crush ambition because you're just so comfortable you don't want to change things. And I think when I was 16, it dawned on me that I could either live in comfort for the rest of my life or I could use that comfort um, to actually be a catalyst for change. And and Mm. that's a decision I think subconsciously without knowing it, I um, I went towards was figuring out because it, it's true. Like you find yourself in seasons of a lot of shifting, a lot of transition, and, yeah. and you you tend to make decisions in those moments. But when you're comfortable, you tend not to. But that's actually the best time to have a wake up call because that can last mm-hmm. for a lot longer than what's healthy and good for the world. Um, it's in those moments that you have all the resources and the people and the you know, um, I guess, platform to actually take the step into the next direction. So I think when I was 16, it was just it was, it was, I was loved, I was supported, I was encouraged, I was not yet heading off to college, I was ready, and just didn't know it. Mm. Yeah, I think that's so interesting. And um, it's so great to hear as well that, you know, you found that you had that realization that, you know, your comfort can actually be you know, a weapon for you moving forward and something that you can use um, to amplify your impact in the work that you're doing. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's pretty awesome because I know that there are a lot of people that do have the passion and do have the interest um, but sort of lay back in that comfort and don't take action and sort of is kind of a bystander to the issue, um, if you get what I mean. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, it's you know, it's always good to hear from people that have sort of taken that step and taken that leap. Um, And I'm sure that there would have been, you know, quite a lot of barriers along the way. Uh, And, you know, you were really young, still balancing university and trying to get your work with the African Soup Up, for example. And, you know, all of those commitments can always be overwhelming. And one thing that actually stops us from wanting to take action, knowing that we've got so much on in our lives. How did you start to both mentally and physically overcome those barriers um, to get it done? Mentally and physically overcome the barriers of comfort? Um, Yeah, overcome the barriers of comfort, I guess we can start with. And then I'd love to hear a bit more about the barriers of, you know, having those other commitments, you know, any other barriers that you might have faced that you didn't really expect. Sure. So I think that the overcoming the barrier to comfort is one of the hardest things that we can do because it it challenges yeah. at our very core what we ought to do, which is to stay stable and to stay um, safe. So safety is at the base yeah. of you know Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and you're immediately looking at that safety and saying, "Nope." I'm going to shift everything. I don't need to. It's not being, I'm not being kicked out of the nest. It's that I'm choosing to jump out of the nest because I want to, because I know that staying in the nest is never going to strengthen my wings. It's never going to push me to be stronger. And it's never going to allow me the opportunity to see what's beyond this. So you just chill in the nest for the rest of your life. And, you know, there are definitely transition points in your life, like I said, where you have to jump out, you know, you graduate from university, or you graduate from secondary school, or you get your first job, these are requirements, say of transition. But what, what is it when you're in the, the midst of comfort, that requires you or that is being asked of you, that you are asking yourself to do, that's going very much so against your grain. 
And I think that's just a recognition that you are in safety. If you are in complete safety, then you are in complete complacency. And I know that sounds terrible because, you know, a lot of people safety is important. I don't mean like physical safety as much as I mean financial safety and security, emotional and relational safety and security. Physical safety and security is a part of that, but mental and emotional safety and security. If all of the realms of your life feel like you're totally safe, then something needs to change because you're just not pushing yourself hard enough. And this is not something that I would tell someone who, um, I guess, has gone through an extreme trauma because I do think that there are seasons where you need to recover. But I tell this to people that I love deeply who are in retirement, (laughs) who I'm like, you just stepped out of a really great job and now you're just going to play golf? Like, no, like you have so much to offer the world. Like pushing, and I say this, the same thing to people who are, you know, fresh out of university and they're working in their first corporate job. And I'm like, you're getting a great paycheck and you're living in a great flat in New York. But like, what are you actually doing? Like, what are you Mm. actually doing? Um, And then it's, it's actually recognizing like there's, there's gotta be some shifts that need to take place. So that's a big barrier is like recognizing that, admitting it, and then doing something about it. That's what 99% of the the population cannot get there. But for that small 1% that can, like it makes all the difference. Mm, Absolutely. Yeah. And like I said, you know, it really does start with that self-awareness being actually able to look at, just take a look at yourself and reflect and understand the situation you're in and sort of the impact that's having on your mindset and you know what you're doing and you know what your potential is and whether you're actually reaching it um were there any barriers once you got started on some of your initiatives that you didn't really expect and how did you sort of adapt to that along the way yeah um I think that living living a meaningful life means that you will face many many barriers that Mm stress and challenges are a part of meaning and creating meaningfulness in your life. And I think when we shy away from say confrontation or stress or these sort of things, not that you should be overly stressed or overly confronting things, but when we totally dismiss them as, as healthy, then we lose sight of the beauty that's right in front of us, that those things are intended to refine us and improve us and improve the the work that we're we're encountering and I think that for me like I encountered more when I I always tell people when I moved to East Africa I got on that plane kicking and screaming I did not want to move to East Africa not that I didn't love East Africa East Africa was beautiful it was that I hated leaving everyone I loved in the United States And similarly, many years later, when I was getting on that plane to move back to the United States, my home, I got on that plane kicking and screaming because I did not want to leave the people that I loved and cherished in Uganda. Mm. I cried all the way to the United States. And (laughs) that was an enormous, I guess, barrier and challenge was that I, I couldn't just continue living the life that was easiest it was even though living in Uganda in many ways was challenging for for me um Mm -hmm. being so far from home I loved it and the the second I felt like living in the United living in Uganda was easier than living in the United States I knew I needed to move back to the United States the United States needed me 
And I needed to be there <laughs> because I was feeling yeah. complacent <laughs> in Uganda, which was crazy. Yeah. I never thought that would, that day would come. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, not being comfortable with being comfortable um, is something that really does require a bit of a mindset shift because I feel like something a lot of people are, you know, told that we should strive towards is, you know, getting to a stage where you're able to live comfortably, you know, provide for your kids to live a comfortable life as well. Um, But that takes away from, as you mentioned, you know, it sort of takes away and puts you in a state of complacency, sort of puts up barriers and blinders to what you can really do and what you might actually want to do. Um, So, yeah, I think just that self-awareness to be able to always reflect on yourself and think about that is so important. Um, And then, you know, once you did get started, Bryn, you mentioned that the people around you played a massive role in what you what you were able to do together and the impact that you guys were able mm. to make. So I know that a lot of people do realize that support networks are important, um, but we've got no idea wh- where to start. We've got no idea how to build them and then how to actually utilize them. Um, so I do really want to touch in on those elements. Um, but I guess to start off, if someone doesn't really realize why support networks are important, um, what would you sort of say to that? I think your community, and this has become, I guess, mainstream um, mm. now, is that community is uh, your ability to survive. We cannot survive in isolation. And I think that's very true of ventures and, and um, young people that start businesses that think, oh, I need to keep this proprietary. I need to keep this really close. I need to hold yeah. the my cars close to my chest because someone might steal my idea. Um, yeah. And then you're not giving it to the community to refine and improve your idea, your concept, your vision, your dream, whatever it is. And, you know, I think that's really true when you just think of personally, how do you how do you thrive and to develop a, a community? And that's a community that's very diverse, that does not just include people that look like you that are of your same age and gender. It's making sure that your community is as diverse as you possibly can make it so that you're not just looking in the mirror when you're trying to have a conversation about what you should do with your next steps. Um, and that that community is not just supposed to be a support system as much as it's supposed to be a challenging system where if you truly have people around you that that love you and care about you, they're not just going to tell you what you want to hear. They're going to actually maybe tell you what you don't want to hear. And that's even more powerful. So it's how do you create depth and not, not as much breadth. So like when you're, you know, find these few people, dig deep into those relationships, make them, you know, bring them close to you, invite them into the, the dark shadows of your life that maybe you're even embarrassed to admit. Maybe it's that you're, big idea that you thought would be the million dollar idea is failing and you just need to talk to them about it, but you're scared that they might judge you. It's inviting them into that space and saying, look, this might fail. I just need you to give me your advice. Um, or, you know, maybe it's a breakup or maybe it's a big transition you're scared to do. Um, maybe for me, it was moving back to the United States after living in Uganda. And I was scared to admit that, but I needed to bring my closest people into those conversations to make sure I wasn't just going crazy. So yeah. yeah, I think that that's why it's so valuable. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, um, yeah, it is definitely so valuable. It is, it is also, I guess, fairly intimidating because you do have to open up, you know, your yourself, your challenges, your ideas to the people that are going to be supporting and challenging you. 
um, how did you go around sort of finding the right people to be there with you? Um, and was yeah. it, I guess, something that was naturally there and you just sort of had to have a think about who you already had or did you actively go out and, and look for people? Sure. Um, I think building a community is a proactive, proactive effort. Mm. You cannot passively build community. Sure, you're born into a family. Um, you probably have a mom. You probably have aunts and uncles. You know, that is something you don't necessarily have to build, although you still need to invest in family. But yeah. outside of family, creating relationships and sustaining healthy relationships is not a passive effort. Mm. And if it becomes passive, it will fade away. It doesn't have the depth. It's convenient. And the minute it becomes inconvenient, it will fall by the wayside. And so I think it's identifying who are your people, who know you, and who do you want to know you, and how do you make sure that you're consistently inviting them into your life. And um, I think that then the one tier out from that is making sure that you you prioritize that diversity element of how do I make sure that there are elder people in my life that are sort of in a mentor role, that they're not going to pursue me necessarily, but I have to pursue them. I have to be hungry. And make yeah. sure that they see updates on my life and that I actually want to get on a call with them. And I actually want to take them and pay for lunch. Um, mm. And making sure that there's also, on the, you know, the flip side of that, there's one or two people that are maybe a few years younger than you that admire you or think highly of you and that you're mm. investing in them. Because that that kind of like there's your closest people at your very, very core, maybe your nucleus. Um, and those people, it's very, very, very proactive, but even the next year out, that's still a proactive effort, um, that you have yeah. to can, you know, make sure that you put energy towards or it will fade away. Yeah, no, I absolutely, absolutely love that. And I think that's, um, just beautiful the way you did put that forward and, you know, approaching relationships, approaching the people that you meet in a way that you're not trying to get and not actually give, I think just having that idea of building a meaningful relationship with the people around you is is so important. And it just leads to much happier relationships, much more fulfilled relationships. But yeah, I, I'd be interested to hear, Bryn, um, how you actually came to that, to that realization. Was it something that you already had um, or yeah, maybe stuff that you, I guess, had to develop your understanding of relationships as you went along? I mean, I think it's a good question of when that realization took place. I think that there's a few really important people in my life that did it very well, um, mm. namely a guy named Eric Glostrom, um, who is a relationship guru. I mean, he he has a list of probably 150 or more contacts that he monthly sends an email to, just checking out. Yeah. And, um, you know, I would say probably has a 20 to 30% response rate on those emails. And he gets coffee with probably a, one or two people a day. And he just believes that whatever work he's doing is uh, contingent on who he's doing it with and who he's sharing mm. ideas with and cross-pollinating mm. his ideas with. And I think that he does that so brilliantly. And I kind of did take a chapter out of the Eric Glustrom book and my own yeah. book on relationships. But I think I also just have this philosophy that um, is drawn from just watching societies from the dawn of time evolve. And the healthiest mm. societies are built 
around community and they're built around a firm belief that you can't do it alone and that you have to do it. And and when community breaks down, I mean, wars break out and, and if there's divisions and there's divisiveness between communities, it leads to destruction. And so it's how do you make sure that in your microcosm of your little piece and slice of the world, you're not creating wars and divisiveness and you're not creating apathy, but you're being proactively um, uh, cohesive or trying to create cohesion and, and, um, you know, moments of collaboration between people. It's the very opposite of war and destruction. Um, But that does not happen accidentally that happens because you choose to make it happen yeah absolutely it's it's conscious process and as you mentioned proactive right um so Mm -hmm. yeah for sure 100 percent um and you know throughout your processes of building your communities and and you know building those relationships and then leading on the people around you um, how did you start to figure out what your strengths were and focus on them? And then how did you go around leveraging, you know, the skills of those around you to really drive the work that you're doing and make it as effective as possible? Yeah, I think building a team is figuring out who has which skills that need to be um, brought out to be able to make the um, venture the idea come to fruition. So mm. there's everyone has innate skills and they sometimes just don't even know what their skills are. And yeah. I think that uh, a skill of mine, I think that I've just only realized in the last couple of years is that I love to bring people together. I love to be the catalyst yeah. that kind of cast the vision um, and helps people get behind that vision and work towards that vision. Um, but I'm not an accountant. I'm horrible, painfully horrible at collecting the tiny details and making sure nothing falls through the crack. It's it's hard enough for me to keep up with my personal email, much mm-hmm. less to make sure that every transaction on my credit card is, you know, properly tracked in our QuickBooks. So, yeah. it how do I make sure that I can identify in someone like a Brad Bauer Kemper who ended up being the CFO of a business um of Lions Thread a business uh I started with my friend Sydney. Um how can I identify Brad as someone who won't let <laughs> an expense go unnoticed? And so yeah. it's it's identifying those skills in people and allowing them to I guess make mistakes within their own role so that they can you know, see how quickly they correct for those mistakes and how much ownership yeah. they take over those mistakes. Because if you create a system where mistakes cannot be made, then you're for sure just driving towards a cliff where eventually you're just going to fall off because you've created people that only work within very tight systems. And once those systems break, they can't self-correct. And so mm. it's it's building in opportunities so that mistakes can be made so they can improve and they can actually be correcting throughout their entire tenure within an organization so you're not just driving towards a cliff where if the system breaks they break yeah so leaving leaving room for those inevitable mistakes and inevitable failures if you call it that along the way so that you know you can learn from them build from that and then move forward um yeah i think that's something a lot of people don't realize mostly because we are always exposed to the successes of people and the successes that they've had that we sort of forget about the fact that mistakes are very inevitable and they're going to happen um and it's about how you bounce back from that and how you learn from that that really matters 
It's true. Very mm. true. Yeah. Um, but it, yeah, I think it's, it's pretty awesome that you were able to do that, you know, having that awareness as well to identify your skills. And, you know, as you said, you're still identifying different skills that you have. Um, have you got, I guess, any really practical things that people might be able to do to if they've got no idea, you know, where their skills lie, what they're, what they're good at, um, things that they might be able to do to maybe start their journey to figure that out? Mm, yeah, I think that it's, it's what are you most excited about? What gets you really, like when you think about the thing that brings you the most joy and excitement, what is that thing? And if it's putting together a Lego set (laughs) when you were a little kid, you know, piecing together a puzzle, or if it's, you know, playing outside and building a tree fort, or if it's, you know, figuring out how the mechanics of a bicycle work, like what are the little things that don't seem inherently um, important, Mm. like how a bicycle works or how to put together a Lego set? or playing with friends, like those things that when you were a kid, what were those things you were drawn to naturally? And then to take a step back and observe what in that is the way that you naturally tick. So if you Mm -hmm. loved looking at a playbook and building out a Lego set, like maybe you like system and structure, maybe you like um, what it means to follow the rules to make sure that you're staying within the guidelines necessary to build the structure perfectly. If you liked discovering how the mechanics of a bicycle work and taking it apart and putting it back together, maybe you like to construct without a rubric and you like a little less structure and you like a little, you know, more freedom in that. If you like, you know, bringing friends together from around the neighborhood so you can play a game of kickball, like maybe you're naturally a a person that likes to bring people together. You're a networker. And how do you then yeah. allow those sort of natural tendencies that are drawn from just the things that you do casually, not necessarily formally in a work environment, like, you know, uploading data and analyzing mm-hmm. it in a pivot table. But what are the things that you do very naturally when you're a kid to today? And then how can you see those trends take place over, say, one or two decades of your life? And then when you draw out those tendencies, evaluate how can I construct that into a role within an organization or, um, you know, maybe not an organization, but within your specific job so that you're actually playing to your strengths rather than to your weaknesses. Yeah, absolutely. I I love that. And, you know, just looking in the things that seem very routine and, um, you know, very quite, quite ordinary, um, just looking in that to find, um, you know, those gems and those, skills and the stuff that you enjoy doing um yeah that's that sounds pretty awesome um i guess just the final thing i do want to touch on um brin particularly as being someone who has worked around international development you know with the um african soup you know really trying to better the experience of others living overseas i'd love to hear because i know a lot of young people um are quite passionate about issues that affect countries around the world what might be things to consider for people that are interested in that area? I think it's taking a minute to recognize, do you want to go overseas because you want, and maybe that's um, going to Africa, um, to Uganda in my case, or maybe it's going to South America or Asia, whatever it Mm. is, maybe it's going Mm. to Australia if you're in the United States. But is it out of a... um, 
a place of just, I want to discover like, what is your real motive? And I think that the only way to go into a country that is not your home country well is to be very, very, very well researched in what your objective is and what your um, knowledge is of that country that you have to be hyper aware of the culture and the, the people in which you're hoping to live alongside and, and to never go in assuming you know what's right. It's yeah. going in with this very humble posture and mindset that you ultimately are going to be a learner and you're not going to be teaching. You're going to be learning. And I think that yeah. that's really important for people who, um, who, who do want to live abroad or move abroad or even just travel abroad is that your objective ought to always be to learn and to, mm. and to share ideas, but to never be the, person that comes in with a prideful posture to to change someone else even if it's accidental i've seen many people in um in uganda that are living there as expatriates so people from europe or the united states or where you know where wherever else and um they are trying to teach quote unquote teach the ugandans how to grow i don't know corn better and, you know, Ugandans are so kind that they listen, but then that white person leaves and they laugh out loud because they've been growing corn in Uganda for eons. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, who is this person to say they know how to, you know, grow corn better than my ancestors have taught me? And that's just mm. so prideful. And so it's how do you go in with a humble heart and a humble posture for um, learning rather than um, just taking your culture, your ideas, and um, forcing it onto the people. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there is quite a fine line between empowerment and disempowerment, um, yeah. you know, in the work that we do. Um, how did you go around really navigating that and making sure that you were actually bettering and, and helping the communities that you were trying to trying to have a positive impact on rather than actually doing something that's adverse to that? Yeah, I think for me, it was always, always, always partnering fully with a Ugandan and trusting fully a Ugandan. Mm. Um, and that was just critical. It was it would have never worked if I had just gone in by myself as someone from the United States who had no understanding of the culture, the context fully and yeah. subjecting them to an idea of what I wanted to change. That would have been, first of all, just completely downright, in my opinion, not ethical but secondly, just ineffective. Yeah. And I think it's making sure that you're surrounding yourself with the real experts in an international development. Those are the local people that are from those communities who believe more in those communities than you ever can. Mm. Um, so yeah, that was the only way we had anything affect. Uh, uh, that's the only way we did anything effectively. <laughs> yeah. Effective. Yeah. No, absolutely. And that's, yeah, that's, that's great to hear. Um, I think just, like b before we finish up, uh, you mentioned that sort of you've moved into um, working with the Watson Institute now. What really inspired that that move for you from the work that you were doing in international development, and now I guess similarly you're trying to empower young people to be able to realize their their potential in a way that you did. Um, but what made you sort of make that shift towards this specifically? Sure. Um... So I, I'm like I mentioned earlier in the podcast, I 
actively chose to leave Uganda because Uganda became comfortable and it became Mm. the easy place to live. And I knew that my time was coming to an end living in Uganda because of that. And as I transitioned by the back to the United States, actually, Eric Glostrom, who founded Watson, reached out to me and said, look, I'm, I'm interested in bringing you onto the team, um, serving as, I guess, the campus president, the president um, of Watson here in Boulder. And I, I would love for you to consider taking on the role. And um, so it was really a timing thing. It was a I was looking to work in the United States. Watson Institute was the perfect job because it was really inspiring young people to actualize their yeah. ideas. Um, and they were, all, you know, our internet, we had 30 young social entrepreneurs in the cohort last term, last cohort, and 11 of them were from the continent of Africa. So mm-hmm. uh, to say it was a perfect fit is an understatement. Um, so it, yeah, that was, that was really what happened. I was planning on moving back to the United States and started looking for jobs and Eric reached out to me and said, would you be interested in serving in this role? Yeah. Awesome. And yeah, I mentioned that sort of your goals moving forward, you mentioned that your goals moving forward are, um, you know, just to amplify that impact and scale that the work that the Watson Institute can do, I guess for you personally, where would you like to see yourself, um, moving forward? Like, in, in terms of developing yourself personally, what would you like to improve upon? Yeah, I think for me, it's um, it's a matter of, of figuring out how to be a better, I guess, entrepreneur, a better professional so that I can better support young people in their desires and dreams to um, improve the world. So that's um, boning up on on things like financial projections, figuring out how to build financial models better, and it's trying to figure out how to create better strategic initiatives and and better teams. And me, really, really digging deep into what does it look like for me to be well equipped to help people be well equipped in mm. their um, development as an entrepreneur. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I love that. You know, I want to acknowledge you as well for a moment, Bryn, for being someone that, you know, not only has made a a great impact through the work you've done so far for continuing to want to uh, better yourself, to want to build those meaningful relationships and positive communities, um, and also, you know, always looking for ways to challenge yourself and the people around you. I think that's invaluable to have people like that um, around. So, yeah, I want to thank you for what you've done and what you're going to continue to do. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing the work that uh, and the impact that you're going to be able to drive. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me on the show. And I really appreciate all the really thoughtful questions you brought forward. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Well, I hope you have a lovely day and hope everyone listening in ha- uh, really enjoyed that as much as I did. Um, thank you so much. Thanks for listening and don't head off just yet. It would mean the world if you could leave a review for us and take action by sharing this episode with one friend you think would benefit from it. Oh, and if you know a young changemaker who should have their story heard, get in touch with us on our website, futurescollective.com. Hope you have a great day.